Now, before we get started with today's sermon, I need three volunteers. Who would, okay, there's one, there's two, and there's three. Come on up. Man, it is a gutsy thing to volunteer like that without even knowing what we're going to do. Wow. All right, I'm going to turn my microphone off and give them some instructions here. Hang on just a second. I got All right, so we are going to play a children's game that uh, you may remember as a child. And so here, let's get started, folks. Okay, so we're going to play this game. And, and you probably remember it. Uh, you probably have done it, even. And uh, who knows? I, I don't know if you have. I, I, think you probably, I think you probably are recognizing uh, what it is already. But we are playing a wonderful game of follow the leader, right? All right. <laughs> very much. Y'all did great. Give him a hand. You did good. I do that because I want you to remember through this sermon, at the end, you're going to probably forget most of what I say today, but you're going to remember that. And, And what I want you to remember is, folks, it does depend, it is important how we follow our leaders. There is a right way and there is a wrong way to follow your leaders. And I know that probably some of you are thinking right now, oh, it's one of those sermons where he says, just do what the pastor tells you. And no, it's not like that. We're going to see that Paul has spent now uh, three chapters talking about how the congregation in Corinth was choosing pastors one over another. They were preferring them one over another. They were actually following them and creating these little groups of following one pastor over another, over another. And it was actually creating divisions in the church, in damaging relationships. That's what divisions mean. And so this is, a, this is a bad deal for any church. Now you might say, well, when they were talking about these apostles, we don't have apostles today, right? So this really isn't a problem. Well, that's true. But pastor elders have really taken the place of apostles in the local church. Now let me explain that, okay? Not in the church universal, but in the local church. Uh, If you look in the book of Acts, uh, and we don't have time to go over this right now, if you want to listen to all of the sermons through the book of Acts, you can go back and do that, and you'll see this happening. You'll see that early on in the book of Acts, uh, right after Jesus was resurrected and he went to heaven, we see that everything was led by the apostles. The apostles were dictating what was happening. The apostles were dictating how the church was being run and what was going on. In Acts 15 at the uh, Jerusalem Council, we see a shift Because virtually every single reference in chapter 15 about the apostles says the apostles and elders, the apostles and elders, the apostles and elders. Because you see what has happened is the apostles have brought the elders into this leadership group and they are leading together. Then as you continue on through the book of Acts, you see that as the apostles are dying off or there are more churches than there are apostles, you see that churches, local churches, are being led by pastor elders. Okay, And they have kind of taken the place of the apostles in the local church. Now, in the universal church, pastors are not apostles. Okay, We do not function like apostles. We do not have the authority of apostles. None of those things. But we do, in the local church, take the place of leading the local church instead of the apostles. So the principles that we see today applying to the apostles about this church in Corinth really do apply to us. And so it's important to kind of have an understanding of that. So let's look at chapter 4, 
verses 1 through 21. I'll just read through it, and then I'll come back and help you see that there are five big principles here that, that Paul wants us to see about how we follow our leaders, because how we do it is important. Now, let's read through it. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, here's what it says. This is how one should regard us, meaning apostles, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Uh, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did not reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us as, as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuge of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Jesus Christ through the gospel. I urge you, then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but of their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? As I said, there are five big principles that Paul wants us to see here. He's talked to them, uh, to the church, about these divisions that have taken place. He's, he's uh, told them to focus on the gospel, focus on the gospel, and don't be focusing on men. But he kind of winds this up with talking about how to follow uh, their spiritual leaders. And the first principle he shares with us is this. Spiritual leaders are above all things servants and stewards. Spiritual leaders are above all things servants and stewards. Look back at verses 1 and 2 again. It says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. While Paul mentions specific apostles in these and previous passages, 
there are also some false apostles that have come into the congregation. They're teaching heresy. They're teaching wrong things. And some, he's going to say later in uh, 1 Corinthians in his letter, some that aren't even believers. They don't even know Jesus. And we'll see that in the upcoming chapters. The first term he uses is that apostles, or now pastor elders, leaders of the church, are first and foremost servants. Now, folks, this right here should take any pastor off the pedestal. Any pastor should be taken off the pedestal. Now, here's a little self-check for you. If you said in the last four weeks, you know, I'm going to sleep in today because, you know, Pastor Michael's on a sabbatical and he won't be preaching today, um, so I don't really want to go until he's back and he preaches. If you have said that in your mind or if you've done that, you may want to do a little self-check. Are you making uh, preferences on pastors? If you're listening by internet today so that you can turn me off when you get good and ready and you didn't want to come today, you've also uh, made you know, preferences because you don't want to see me. That's fine. Okay, whatever. Okay? So listen, we as pastors have to remember and focus on the fact that above everything else, we are to be servants. And the word servants, folks, means that we do not own anyone or anything. They we, as pastors, are owned by Christ himself. Now, that's not different for anybody else. But listen, it's important for us to understand, you aren't our people. You're his people. This isn't our church. This is his church. This isn't my stage or my pulpit. This is his stage, his pulpit. Everything here is his. We are servants to him. The false teachers, it seems, are, we're going to see this later, are gathering followers as if, to, as if they own them. They're trying to gather a group to say, hey, you're Michael's followers, you're Michael's people. And that's just not right. We have to please our master rather than those we serve. Gentlemen, those of us are our pastors, we must always keep focused that we must please the one who owns us our master Jesus Christ, not those we serve. Now, that may not set well with you, but, but we have to do what's right in his eyes. Doesn't matter who gives what, doesn't matter who serves where, doesn't matter who's been at this church the longest, or what, none of that matters. We are not gonna answer to you in the long run. We're gonna answer to God. And we're only gonna get one chance to prepare for that meeting. And so it's important that we understand that we are servants above everything else. And if you have a desire to be a pastor, you have to understand that you need to, be a, you need to have a desire to be a servant above everything else. I think church, uh, when churches have um, organizational charts, which we do, that just tells who you talk to and who you report to and all that kind of stuff, I think organizational charts for churches should be upside down. In every company I've ever seen, you know, all of the leaders are at the top and it kind of comes down this way. And in reality, if, if we're the greatest servants, it should be upside down, where the pastors are at the bottom, serving those who report to them, who are serving those who report to them. And then finally, the congregations up at the top with all of these people in ministry serving them. That's how the church should be. We are servants above all. The second thing he says is that we are stewards. That means we're managers. That's not managers of the, of the people. It's not managers of the resources necessarily. What it's a manager, if you look carefully, it's the message. 
We are the managers of the message, the gospel. We are to accurately and faithfully execute the teaching and following of the mysteries of God, which is always a reference to the gospel. Paul uses this term in many different contexts when he talks about the mysteries of God because there are many mysteries of God, but they always in some way refer to the gospel. It doesn't make any sense that God would love sinners who thumb their nose at him, that he would send his son to die on a cross and pay for those sins so that by faith and, and trust, we could put our faith and trust in what Jesus did and be saved from all of those horrible things that we have done, that we are doing, and that we will do. Does that make any sense? Not humanly speaking. So it's a mystery of God. Why would God, who is holy, want to give mercy and grace to people who are sinners? It's a mystery of God. And so he's saying that we are stewards, pastor elders are stewards of this incredible message of the, of the gospel. It's a huge responsibility and one that no leader should take lightly. To think that one day we as pastors will stand before God and give an account to how we have communicated his truth, that, that's something to lose sleep over. He also says that we as stewards should be found faithful to not only teach but to live out that message. So if you're here today and you have any desire to be a spiritual leader or even a pastor elder at some point, I want to encourage you right now to practice being a servant to the body and a steward of the word of God in your life, in your family's life, and in the lives of those who give you the opportunity to have influence with them. Listen, this is not... Uh, being a pastor is not a vocation that you choose. You don't wake up one day and say, hey, I think I'm going to be a pastor, and so today I'll start serving the body of Christ. No. We should be servants already. We should be, uh, it's a calling that we have no control over. But being a servant and being a, a, a good steward of God's word are things we should be doing already. And Paul's saying all of this to him to say, uh, listen, our job is not to gather a big mass of people to say, hey, Michael's the best. Hey, Derek's the best. Hey, uh, Christopher's the best. Hey, John's the best. Let's see who can get the biggest people on their side. That's not what we're doing. We're here to be servants of you, servants of the body, and stewards of God's great mysteries. That's our responsibility. The second thing he points out here is that righteous judgment comes from God and God alone. Look at verses three through five. And stay with me here because this is perhaps one of the most confusing principles uh, to Christians in our day and age. He says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. A lot of stuff in there. Now we see in our culture, we see uh, one of these half verses uh, on, you know, it seems like every Christian's house I go to, they put they have this sign up and, you know, if you have one, don't go down home, home and take it down today for my sake. Don't worry about that, okay? But it's, it's everywhere. Judge not lest ye be judged. And every time, not every time, most times when that is uh, 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 communicated as a partial truth, it really is to falsely tell everybody else to back off and leave me alone. 
And if you bring up any of my issues to light, you're being the bad one by judging me. So green light for me and my bad behavior. Okay? Because as soon as you point out to me uh, that I'm doing something wrong, I'm going to go, whoa, judge not, lest you be judged. Oh, I can't talk to him about it now, right? It, it's just it's goofy. Okay? And we also see people falsely judging one another's hearts and motives. Uh, it's not uncommon for me to hear somebody say, now you, you know why he did that, don't you? And I want to say, no, do you? You have a window into that person's soul and you can tell why they do what they, listen, if you can teach me how to know people's motives, uh, that would be really helpful. So if you know how to do that, come talk to me this week and help me because I, I don't think we can do that. And Paul's saying, listen, I can't do that. In fact, he's saying, I can't even judge myself. So I don't think I'm doing anything wrong, but I'm not even a good judge of myself. I don't have a holy heart. I don't have pure and 100% holy and good motives. How do I even judge me? Sometimes I see somebody posting sinful behavior on Twitter or Facebook, and I can't say anything to them because I'd be judging them, right? Oh, pastor, don't judge me. Okay? Now listen, this is a principle that we've just discombobulated all up in our minds and in our culture. Let Paul straighten us out here, okay? The reason he's dealing with this right here, by the way, if it seems like it's kind of an offshoot subject, it's not, it's because there are probably many in this moment that are saying to themselves, hey, you know why Paul, you know why Paul doesn't want us to make choices between leaders, don't you? Because I didn't pick him. <laughs> See, he, that's why he's doing that. And, and that's not the case. That's, but this is why Paul's dealing with it. So he says, okay, well, first of all, he's saying, if you judge me or even a court of law, whether you as Corinthians judge me or even if a court of law judges me, doesn't mean much. I don't care. In fact, again, I can't even judge myself well. Even when I don't think I'm doing anything wrong, my heart is not an adequate and perfect judge. I can't even judge myself. Folks, he's pointing out the inadequacies of their judgment by admitting that even his own judgment is less than perfect. So it's unreliable. Listen, if I can't judge myself, I think I know my motives better than you do. Probably. You know your motives better than I do. But if I know myself better than anybody else does, and I can't even perfectly judge my motives, how in the world are you going to do it? And let's just be really honest. I, I, I've studied this. I've read a lot about this. And I, I think it's a very complex issue. I think it's very rare that we do an act or we say a thing out of purely and solely one 100% motive. There are usually a lot of motives kind of mixed in. Okay, we want the way people see us, the way we want to see ourselves. There's all kinds of things. And to be honest, we deceive ourselves about a lot of those things. So Paul is just saying, just quit, quit offering any opinion about anyone else's language or behavior. Is that what he's saying? No, of course not. He's not. He's saying judge righteously with eternity in mind. So what judging is sinful and what judging is righteous? Because in fact, in that passage in Matthew 7, that says, uh, do not judge lest you be judged. It's actually talking about judging righteously. The point is not to not judge, it's to judge. To judge, but do it well, do it righteously. It says to fix your own issues first, then you'll be in a better position to judge others. If you, if you haven't read the passage in Matthew 7, you can go back and read it. But what it basically says is this, listen, when you come to me and say, I got a speck in my eye, but you got a two by four shoved in yours, you got no place to talk to me about my little tiny speck in my own. 
But then if you read on, it says, first, take the two by four out of your eye so that you can see well to help your neighbor with the speck that is in yours. It doesn't say don't judge them. It says, wait, get it right. Get it right in your life first, and then you go to them and help them with the speck that is in your eye. For instance, if you struggle greatly with worry, which is a sin, you should first learn how to not worry, then you'll be in a better position to tell others and to teach others how not to worry. Instead of just pointing out, well, you shouldn't worry like that because I do that all the time. That's not helpful. It's not beneficial. The passage is not saying don't point out sinful behavior. So what specifically are we to judge as Christians and what are we specifically to not judge as Christians? I'm going to give you just a few uh, bullet points and then I want you to discuss this in your community groups. Should be a pretty wild conversation in your community groups this week, okay? Here are the things that the Bible specifically says we should judge. Point out specific sinful behaviors and actions of other believers for their benefit to inform and encourage right behavior. Listen, if you see me uh, uh, act rudely to my wife, which is a sin for me to act rudely to anyone, but especially if you witness that, you owe it to me. You owe it to me as another fellow believer to come and say, hey, Pastor Michael, I love you, but I saw you do this and it was kind of really rude to your wife. How am I going to get better if nobody points that out to me? How am I going to overcome those things if I never acknowledge it? And so that's one of the things that the Bible specifically says, do point out these things in other believers to inform them of their bad behavior and to encourage right behavior, not just to beat them up, okay? We're also to judge character as it's described in God's word. We're also to judge doctrinal truth based on God's word and not based on our opinion or our desire. Well, it probably... And it probably doesn't happen once a month, but probably every other month. I'm having a conversation with somebody about what the Word of God says, and they say something kind of like this. Well, I, I don't like that. I don't think that can be what it means because I don't, I don't like that. Well, there's a lot of things I don't like what God says. There's, you know, he tells me to do things I don't want to do. He tells me not to do things I want to do. I mean, he, he really expresses some things that are different than my heart and my desires at times. But folks, we got to understand that He's in charge. We aren't. I don't get to determine. I had a great conversation with two lost people uh, earlier this week. Um, and, and I just asked them, two young people I knew didn't know Jesus. And I said to them, I got a question for you. What is your North Star? Uh, what, what, what is the thing or the person or the, what, what is the thing that gives you all of your right and wrongs? What is the thing that directs your life when it comes to morals? And they gave me a bunch of answers that weren't answers. And I said, okay, that's not an answer. Here's the question. Who decides for you what's right and wrong? And they both came back and finally got to the place where they said, well, I, I guess I do. And I said, well, I got a question. Is that, is that really a good option? I mean, are you really in charge of the universe to the place that you can determine right and wrong for yourself? I know I can't for me. I have to find an outside source that can tell me what right and wrong is because my desires, my heart is not, you know, pure as a driven snow. And they left to be fuddled and asked for my card and hopefully we'll have lunch soon and talk about it more. But we are to, to judge doctrinal truth based on God's word and not our opinion or our desires. We are not to judge, we are not to judge people's hearts or motives, or motives 
says we can't accurately know them. Paul says that. We are not to judge unbelievers about their sin. Doesn't mean we shouldn't point it out that they're sinners. But we shouldn't point it out as though we expect them to do something about it. Listen, folks, apple trees bear apples. Somebody was very kind to me last week and gave me uh, tickets to the Chiefs game. Now, if, if you ever do that, if you can figure out which games are going to win and give me tickets to those games, that would be better. But anyway, I, so I went to the game, and I'm, I'm sitting there, and my, my, my spirit you know, is, I, I'm starting to just kind of go, ugh, ooh, ugh, ugh, because of the language around me, because of the things people are saying and doing and all of that interacting. And then I thought to myself, Michael, what are you doing you're standing in, in an apple orchard and you're saying, why in the world are they pumping out apples? Well, well, are you kidding? Listen, apple trees bear apples, folks. Lost people sin. And so it's not a matter of us judging them or bringing to their attention so they can fix it or so they can do something about it. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that for them. Okay, we should not judge based on personal preferences or convictions that are not universal sins. So in other words, if you think that it's, you know, I just have this conviction about not wearing jeans to church. Okay, don't wear jeans to church. But there's nothing in the Bible that says that. And so uh, don't put that off on the rest of us and now talk to the rest of us and judge us because we're wearing jeans to church. Or church from Jamaica. You know, just something. Okay. And the last thing not to judge is what we may assume is happening behind closed doors that we don't specifically know, because we do that sometimes too. Now listen, there's a lot of other things. Talk about this in your community groups this week. Use passages of the scripture uh, to, to validate your responses and your conclusions, and I think it'll be a good conversation. Listen, Paul also reminds us that there is coming a time when we will be judged, when everything secret will be out in the open, and where every heart motive will be revealed. Now, I remember when I was a kid and a pastor would preach through this passage, he would always say, because what's going to happen is when you all die, we're, gonna have, we're all going to sit and watch everybody's movie, and, and everybody's going to see everything you've ever done in secret, and every heart thing, and they're going to read your heart the whole time, and, and listen, that's not what it says. It doesn't say who it's going to be revealed to, but it is going to be revealed. And, and actually, if you look carefully, I know they, they did that to scare us into doing right things more often, uh, but if you look at the passage, what it really is talking about is talking about being commended. It's commendation. It's a positive thing. So the things you've done in secret that are positive, people are going to know. Or at least God's going to acknowledge to you that he knows. They're going to be revealed. It's going to be seen. And that should be comfort to us who do things anonymously without having to be uh, you know, seen. Based on Paul's response here, it seems that some Corinthians are pronouncing a final judgment on the ministries and the ministers of certain apostles, and that's why they're choosing favorites. Go on with that discussion this week. I got to move on, okay? The third principle we see here in this passage is that the source of divisions and cliques centered around leaders is conceit. The source of divisions and cliques centered around leaders is conceit on the part of of the Corinthians, not on the part of the leaders, on the part of the Corinthians. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 
Now, in these verses, Paul only uses Apollos because they had both directly ministered at Corinth. Paul had planted the church, had, had led many of the people to Christ. Apollos came in after Paul left and uh, ministered there and, and uh, helped disciples many of the people. Okay? So they knew these two guys really well. The reality is when you choose one leader over another, you elevate one and what happens to the other? Just by sheer, you know, the way the system works, you diminish them. If I raise this person up, then this person is less. This person is diminished in their importance and in their validity. Paul also begins to bring up one of the future issues, which is boasting in their spiritual gifts. He hasn't been specific about it yet, but he will be. He brings it up here because most likely people are gravitating to leaders who have their same spiritual gift or perhaps even some false apostles who are elevating one gift over another because we're going to see that the church is also dividing over that in the future. Paul is getting ready to contrast how the righteous apostles view themselves against how the people are viewing them. All of the focus here, you see, has been misdirected by either elevating some apostles to some kind of celebrity status or diminishing others because of unrighteous human comparisons between leaders. The congregation has become arrogant, arrogant enough to judge each other's gifts and the gifts of the apostles at the church. They're literally giving a value judgment to the blessings God has given them. No, no, that's what Paul's saying here. Hey, listen, if you have a spiritual gift, and by the way, if you know Jesus, you do, who do you think gave that to you? Paulus didn't give that to you. I didn't give that to you. Why are you elevating us? We aren't the ones that gave you that stuff. God did. By the way, the apostles themselves if you see in the book of Ephesians, the apostles themselves, apostleship is not a gift. You don't get a gift to be an apostle. The apostles themselves are gifts to the church. And so when you value one apostle over the other or one leader over another who have been given as gifts to the body of Christ, you're saying, God, this blessing is really good you gave me and this one not so much. God, you should work on that. It's a level of conceit. It's a level that somehow we know better than what God does. And so you have to understand when you begin to divide your loyalties between uh, pastor leaders that are loving you and, and, and leading you together, you're really doing that out of a sense of conceit. The fourth principle we see is that Christians have not arrived and they are not above the suffering of Christ or the apostles. Here Paul actually becomes quite sarcastic in his description of their thinking. He's going to describe some of their thinking and he really is very sarcastic, which you know, it makes me love Paul even more. Uh, but it, it, listen to the way that this is read in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 13. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. 
We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuge of all things. When Paul starts out these verses, he uses the word already because he's implying that they are acting like somehow they have already arrived. They have already uh, received all of God's blessings. But as he compares their carnal Christianity to the apostles, we see the folly of this attitude. Now you may think to yourself, this is so ridiculous. How can anyone think this? Well, just turn on the prosperity gospel preachers on television or see how many books they sell on Amazon. People fall for this all the time, folks. This idea that we somehow are already receiving the fullness of God's kingdom is just foolishness. The Corinthians are following leaders that are saying what they want to hear. Just come and follow me. God will make you healthy. He'll take care of all your problems. He'll make you wealthy. He'll make you successful. He'll make everything in your life be awesome. Just come and follow me and, and I'll share with you this relationship with God that'll turn everything uh, to you know unicorns and ponies or rainbows or whatever they say. All those two good things. All right? And, and Paul's saying, listen, folks, this is not so. Oh, yeah? Paul's saying? Why is he doing that for you, but he won't do that for his own apostles? He's not doing that for me. Listen, Jesus clearly talks about the suffering and difficulty in this life and glory in the next. How can these Corinthians miss the fact that we as followers of Jesus will find hardship and persecution in this life? Oh, wait. How can we miss the fact that as followers of Jesus, we will find hardship and persecution in this life? Jesus talks about it. Over 30 times he talks about it. Paul gives us a profound bit of advice here. He says, don't go beyond what is written. Don't go beyond what's written. He said, Look, you know, me and Apollos and what we're teaching, don't go beyond what's written. In other words, when somebody comes and promises you to do something more than the gospel, you better, your red heresy flag better start going like crazy. You know, the siren should be going. Now, in our culture, as, as evangelical Christians, we are really pretty good at people taking things away from the gospel. In other words, uh, and what I mean by the gospel is the good news of Jesus. We are sinners. We can't do anything to fix that. Uh, but God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross and pay for our sins. If we'll just put our faith and trust in him, he will save us and change our lives. That's the gospel. Whenever we hear somebody take something away from the gospel, man, our heresy sirens go off. Hey, listen, we're not really all sinners. We're, some, we're pretty good people. When it comes to people on the planet, we're pretty good people. Almost all of us would go, whoop, 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 heresy, heresy. You know, Will Robinson, you know, uh, that's too old. Uh, you know, something will go off in our heads, right? But what happens is those who are false teachers don't just subtract from the gospel. They add to the gospel. Fact they do it more often because it's harder to see and it's harder to latch on to. And if you don't know God's word well, you could fall for those things pretty easy because it sounds pretty reasonable to the human mind. Listen, if God loves you, and he does, and Jesus loves you, and he does, doesn't it make sense that he's just gonna magically take care of all your bills for you? That sounds really good. That sounds really logical. Does that work for you? Doesn't always work for me. I mean, he eventually does, but sometimes he cuts it kind of close. <laughs> listen, he's just reminding them, hey, listen, stick with what's written. And by the way, as you 
uh, do uh, judge the elders in the areas you should judge them, always make sure that we stay to the truth of God's word. Paul also reminds them of the responses of the apostles to the uh, mistreatment of this world, which has got to be sobering to those who thought they were above the apostles in a position of judgment over them. Because they were basically saying, listen, folks, the world treats us like scum. The world treats spiritual leaders like scum. And, and who are you to be judging them when you think you're above them? And that's another point of conceit. Finally, we see that Paul would prefer to instruct by influence. But if not, by power and authority. Uh, look at verses 14 through 21. I know I'm going long, but I've, I've saved up four weeks for this. Uh, and we're almost done. Okay, we're almost done. Look at verses 14 through 21. We'll spend just a couple more minutes looking at it. Here's what it says. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, but though, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Now in that last verse, when I've read this, I always hear my mother's voice. I always remember sitting there in church with her and, and I would, you know, as a young boy, I would be making noise and, and fidgeting around and they'd have me on all kinds of medication if I grew up in today's world. And my mother just leaned down to me and would say very gently, or my father, it's even worse. Uh, but my mother leaned down and say, Michael, listen, you're going to be quiet and you're going to sit still here in church. Now you can either do that on your own or I can take you out to the foyer and blister your butt and you're going to come right back here and you're going to sit still and be quiet. So which would you prefer? Do you have a choice? And I'm like, I think I can do it without going to the foyer. I think I'm good. I, th I think I'm going to take uh, door A, okay? And so anyway, that's, that's what, uh, that's what I, I got. And, and Paul's basically saying that here. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But as Paul sums up this particular issue, he writes with a fatherly passion. He's writing to them as a father. He's, he's not trying to shame them or humiliate them. He's begging them as a father, please, please stop doing this. You're causing divisions in the body. Please, I'm begging. Listen, there have been times when I have begged my children, please stop doing this. I don't want to have to do something. But if you keep doing this, I'm going to have to do something. Please stop. He says you may have a lot of teachers in your life, and you will. And you've probably, if you've been a Christian very long, you probably have many teachers in life. He said, but you only have one father. You only have one spiritual father. Paul's reminding them of the spiritual investment that he has made in their lives. He is reminding them that most of them, probably most of them, came to know Christ through his personal evangelism. He's saying, listen, I'm the one that led you to Jesus. I'm the one that shared the gospel with you. I'm the one that connected you to grace. I mean, God did it all, but, but God used me to do that. Don't forsake listening to me. Listen to me. Why would I steer you wrong now? Now, these false teachers, while perhaps sounding awesome, are not the ones who shared the good news of God's love for them in the midst of their sinfulness. Paul did. And he's, he's in a sense, playing that card to say, listen, I love you. 
Now, we do indeed owe a special level of loyalty and faithfulness to the teaching of those who have been our spiritual fathers rather than those who have just been our teachers, kind of come-and-go teachers. Listen, Paul is an apostle. He could order them or command them to do whatever he said, but that's just not how Paul rules. He knows that it is better to implore them as a loving father to follow their leaders in a respectable, Christ-like manner, not elevating or diminishing, but by following their example. In fact, he says, I've even sent Timothy, my right-hand man, I've sent him to you so that you could be reminded of what I taught you and how I lived in front of you. And that principle is summed up, we'll see it in chapter 11, where Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul's not saying I'm the measure. He's simply saying that these are principles that if I'm following Christ so well, if you'll just follow me, it's kind of hard to go, hey, do what Jesus would do. You know, that whole, what would Jesus do? We don't have a clue most of the time what Jesus would do. And, and, and he hasn't lived in front of us to do those things in our culture. But if somebody were to say, listen, I'm doing what Jesus would do. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm, example, I'm an example of it. And, and then we say, well, to be like this person, it's a lot easier for us to understand. So Paul's just saying, listen, if you'll just follow me as well as I'm following Christ, that's way better than what you're doing. But he ends this section with this. Some of you may be thinking you can just ignore what I've said and keep doing what you're doing. And I want you to follow my instruction out of respect and honor for me. But if you don't, when I come, and I will, I'm going to come with a rod ready to do some spiritual spanking. Please don't make me do this. See, Paul loves the church and its unity more than any individual one person. He's saying, listen, you've got you to stop doing this. So let me sum up. First, leaders, especially pastors, be servants of the body and stewards of God's word. This is the measure of a faithful leader, not all the ways the world measures leadership. I wish I could go to one leadership uh, uh, summit, one leadership uh, seminar somewhere where they say, we're going to throw all the books and all the goofy teachers that are making money on leadership today, and we're going to look at the things that Jesus did, the things that Paul did, and the things that the apostles did, and that's it. That's pretty good leadership. We should do the same thing, okay? Also, folks, we as a congregation should follow Christ through the proper leadership of the church, not the men of the church, not the pastors of the church, but through the proper leadership of the church. While it may sound like those are the same thing, they're not. Lastly, view pastors and elders with a proper perspective. If we are being faithful to serve the body as pastors and stewarding the word of God well, respect us and follow us, but do not elevate us for human reasons and do not diminish others for those same human reasons. We are God's appointed vessels to lead his church. And with that enormous responsibility comes great accountability to God and the sacrifice of our own lives to the body of Christ. Listen, folks, when leaders keep a proper perspective of ourselves, guys, pastors, when we keep a proper perspective of ourselves and our responsibilities and the body keeps a proper perspective of leadership, divisions and cliques in the body just don't happen around this issue. They can be almost completely resolved around this issue if we'll just keep those things in mind. And I don't think this has ever been a, an issue or a problem for our church, and I pray that it never is. But I think God gives us some good reminders here and some good thoughts uh, to think as far as uh, just following leadership that is doing well and doing right 
and not elevating one over the other to create divisions amongst us. Folks, we are one body. We, we, spiritual unity is critical. And to say that we're going to divide up based on, I like this pastor more than this pastor, is just, it's evil. It's just evil. And Satan will use it to divide and kill a church. So we need to work together to make sure that never happens here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just the way you teach us. Father, thank you for this um, passage in 1 Corinthians that Paul has shared with us. I pray that we would never allow these things to become issues at Fellowship of Grace. God, help us as pastors to stay humble, uh, to stay uh, just focused on being a blessing and a servant to this body and good stewards of your word. And then, Father, help us all uh, to not uh, elevate one over the other to create divisions in our church. Thank you for the unity that this church has experienced over the years. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.